Women's Health Melbourne is an innovative, holistic fertility and women's health practice. We are world leaders in IVF and egg freezing and provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our hand-picked expert team provides the ultimate care experience for our patients. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and follow us at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr Rayleigh Alou. Welcome to Knocked Up, the podcast about fertility and women's health. You are joined, as always, by me, Geordie Morrison, and Dr. Radia Lu, CREI Fertility Specialist. For our final episode with the scientists, we are joined by Cody Thomas to discuss lab insights, what do we learn when cycles fail. Cody completed her Master's of Clinical Embryology at Monash University in 2017 and has since worked at Melbourne IVF as an embryologist. Welcome, Cody. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Before we start with the questions, and I've got a few here, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background, what you studied, and what made you decide to become an embryologist? Yeah, so um, I did a undergraduate degree in science and I majored in genetics and developmental biology so I was always kind of interested in that background and I knew that I was passionate about women's health but I didn't really know how they were going to combine and then I ended up going back and studying my postgraduate diploma in reproductive science and then I went on to do my master's in clinical embryology so it all kind of lined up in the end. What do you think is the best part of your job? Oh, that's such a good question. I really, I do love the practical side and um, the skill that's involved in what we do, but my favourite part is talking to patients. So I love the patient contact. Um, I love explaining um, things that may not be so clear and, um, you know, helping patients understand their treatments better. And it's really important to understand in IVF, I said this before, I probably sound like a broken record, but that it is such a team enterprise trying to work together to help couples overcome infertility preserve fertility make babies it's something that I also love about this area of medicine that it is so interactive that we have such relationships with our skilled colleagues and that it's so multidisciplinary and it's multifactorial and so when things do go wrong in the lab for example we really have to be problem solvers and scientific sleuths and try and figure out firstly what's happened and secondly what can we do about it is there potential to have a different outcome trying again is there potential to make changes that will impact a woman or couple's chance of future success absolutely it's um that's one of the more challenging parts of our job is to kind of figure out, um, well, if something is going wrong, which normally it is because that's why patients come through in the first place, um, what it is that's going wrong, and then, again, what can we change in the treatment to try and overcome that problem. Raylia often says that the first round of IVF is often diagnostic. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And, um, you know, even before patients come through, we get them to do a semen analysis to try and rule out 
those things that could be impacting. So that's um, sperm concentration, sperm motility, so how fast the sperm is moving or or if it's moving, um, and then morphology as well, so what the sperm looks like. So even before they come through, we've kind of got a little bit of background, but until we do that first treatment cycle, we really don't know what it is that's not working. It's really interesting that you say that as well because the semen analysis that we use to guide us to assess sperm, it's really something that is using an indirect comparison because it's not a test of how sperm fertilizes an egg or how good it is at fertilizing an egg normally. It's a comparison of how a man's sperm looks compared to sperm from other men with a reference range. So it's inferring that how many sperm there are, how, how many of normal forms or morphology there are, how many that swim in the right direction will have some correlation. And a lot of the time it does, but sometimes it doesn't. Just because we know kind of what it looks like and um, that gives us an indication of which method we should start using doesn't mean that it's going to go smoothly once we, you know, include the egg into the equation. I guess one of the first things that kind of pops up is that when we, um, if we have ruled out that it's not potentially a sperm issue and we do think it's in that normal range, like you said, in comparison to other men, then we think, okay, we'll, we'll use that natural insemination method or IVF to, because the sperm should be able to do that on its own. And then when it doesn't do that, so if we do get a failed cycle with IVF, it's usually because the sperm has had a binding issue with the egg. And for couples experiencing that first time round, and it usually is treatment one that we find that out, it's heartbreaking to hear, you know, you've had zero fertilization. But from a lab point of view and from an ex- exploratory point of view, it gives us so much information and it actually answers a lot of questions because you know although it's heartbreaking that you haven't got any fertilized eggs from this cycle we know now why you're not getting pregnant naturally and we can overcome this by using the other method which is um ICSI or intracytoplasmic sperm injection so cody there's been a lot of push around the art scientific community about the potential overuse of ICSI. I can see how as a member of the public who doesn't necessarily have background in science, you might think, well, why don't you just use ICSI all the time? It's important to kind of remember that although ICSI does overcome that sperm binding issue, our ICSI fur rate is still between 60 to 70%. So it's still not perfect. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to get fertilization. The other thing is because it's not a natural method, we know to a certain extent how safe it is, but there are other things to consider. Like are we putting too much on the egg? Are we taking too much of the natural process away by injecting straight into the egg? What does that do long term? It is hard and it's still unknown and perhaps I can understand from an outside point of view that maybe it's too much intervention. And it's a bit um, intrusive on the egg, I guess. Yeah. And not every egg survives injection. 
That's correct. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like I said, with failed FERT for IVF, it it's a bit more obvious what's gone wrong. But for failed FERT for ICSI, um, it could be a multitude of reasons, and some of them aren't always completely clear to us. Um, egg problem is a big one. So um, it could be because of how the egg morphology is, so how the egg looks. Um, it might not even be that. It might be the quality of the eggs. It could be the health or the genetics of the eggs. But otherwise, like you said, it could be the behaviour. So once we inject it, we don't actually know how the egg is going to behave until we inject it. And some of the time, like you said, they're quite fragile and they don't actually survive the process of being injected and they will lise or degenerate at the time of injection. So that's another um, complication that we have to overcome is um, fragile eggs. And we do have a method which we can use. So it's called laser injection. And what it does is it um, uses a laser beam, a tiny laser beam, to put a little hole in the zona, which is the part that surrounds the egg, kind of protects it. And what that means is instead of putting so much pressure on the egg when we go to inject it, we've kind of made a little hole so there's there's less resistance to go through and it's less pressure on the egg. So as we inject into it, we don't have to put as much pressure and it goes through a bit smoothly, a bit more smoothly potentially. Because, yeah, some, we expect normally that the egg will give us a bit of resistance and that injection should kind of just go in and go out quite smoothly, but some eggs just can't can't manage that. And so we do need to use this laser injection technique. So it's really cool, I think, to consider that we do get to, in an IVF context, really have a look at egg quality for the first time in terms of how an egg behaves in the lab, watching it under a microscope, seeing how many eggs translate to embryos. The thing about biology, which is always fascinating, I mean, people want really black and white explanations, but biology is every shade. And so sometimes you don't have a zero fertilization, but you might have a low fertilization. Or sometimes you don't have a zero um, embryo cycle, but you might have poor quality embryos. What insights do you have from a lab perspective of what we can do in the lab to try and correct issues that we see? Yeah, so there's there's two kind of points that you brought up there. So um, one is low fertilisation and there is another issue, um, and again, unfortunately, it's to do with the egg again. We're putting a lot of blame on the poor egg, but it's called oocyte activation. So um, if we're only getting low FERT or, again, no FERT and we've used the ICSI procedure, it, the eggs have behaved normally, they haven't, lies, they seem to do well with the ICSI, but we're just not getting fertilisation. There is one other reason um, that we know of that could cause it, and it's because the natural process of where the sperm enters the egg and sets off oocyte activation um, hasn't occurred naturally and we require this to occur um, I know you've explained in earlier episodes about meiosis and mitosis and how the eggs are formed but once they're formed they kind of lie dormant so until that sperm hits the egg it kind of wakes it up and it, we require that activation to, to get fertilization but sometimes that process doesn't occur we can't see that it's not very clear that that's happened 
However, we can overcome it and we can try different techniques in case that's what's happened. So we have a technique um, called mechanical activation, which is where we go in and we're a little bit rougher with the egg, um, but that can wake it up a bit and get it ready for, for fertilization. We do that at the time of ICSI. There's also a chemical way to do that by adding a, um, a lot of calcium, which is what's required for oocyte activation. And that's another technique we can use during ICSI. So that's kind of something that's, yeah, if we've got an unknown problem, the egg looks good, but we don't really know what's happened, we can try that. If what you said that we're getting a low um, blastocyst rate, so maybe we have had some fertilization, but the eggs have either not divided correctly or they've, they've divided, but they don't make it to a stage where there are blastocysts that's usable. It could have something to do with the DNA that's going on inside the egg or the embryo. Um, but sometimes that's not the egg's problem. Sometimes it comes from the sperm. So when we look at the sperm, we try and pick the most usable sperm. We want the one that's swimming. We want the one that looks the most normal. But we don't really know what's going on inside it. And if its DNA is correct, um, sometimes sperm can have issues with DNA fragmentation. So if this has occurred... What we can do, again, it's exploratory. We don't actually know that there is a problem with the DNA fragmentation. We're guessing. And what we can do is use a process where we put the magnification right up when we do ICSI so that we can see inside the sperm's head so much so that we can look for these little holes almost that look like, they're called vacuoles, but they look like little holes. And the less holes you see inside a sperm's head, the um, better the DNA fragment, I mean, sorry, yeah, the less likely it is to have DNA fragmentation. So um, they use this IMSI technique where they morphologically pick the sperm and inject it in the hopes that we can overcome DNA fragmentation and we get better blastocyst rate from that process, hopefully. And one thing that I always... Uh, talk to my patients about is antioxidant therapy for men because one advantage we have in influencing sperm development is that men are constantly making sperm whereas women we've made all our eggs but men are constantly making new sperm so there are also clinical things that we can attack um, when it comes to concerns about sperm DNA fragmentation quality we can make sure that diet and lifestyle is optimised and that there are no, you know, extraneous sources of oxidative stress. We can use antioxidant therapy in high dose. One that's been studied quite a lot is CoQ and using that in high dose can sometimes help. Otherwise, uh, an alternate form is known as ubiquinol. Uh, but then also things like treating varicose veins of the scrotum, you know, looking at temperature regulation, you know, making sure that a man is ejaculating regularly so he's clearing the sperm and, and making new sperm fresh for a cycle. All of these things are things that we can do outside of the lab to try and then deliver the best possible sperm to the lab for interaction. So buy-in from male partners is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's not it's not just all on the egg. We need um, We need the sperm to be the best quality it can be on the day. And like the Yul Brynner ad from the Quit campaign in the 80s, don't smoke. 
<laughs> don't smoke yet. <laughs> Absolutely. So from the embryology perspective, Cody, you probably do see patients coming through for more than one cycle quite frequently in an IVF context. And from an embryology point of view, what insights do you have about looking at a patient's past treatment to then infer on future treatments? Yeah, so that's, um, it's a good question. So usually it does, like you said, the first cycle is really diagnostic. um, And then after that, I think the average number of cycles it takes to achieve success is three. I think worldwide, that's that's the number. Um, what it's more doing is deciding first off which insemination method we are going to use. Um, that's the most important because that sets us up and how the rest of our cycle is going to work. But then going forward from that, if a patient has had a poor outcome from their first or second cycle, it really is investigating as much as we can what is the cause. So have we noticed um, egg morphology issues? Have we noticed the behaviour? So that lysis issue um, or is it something that's completely unknown from those first two cycles? So have we tried IVF and then realised it's a sperm binding issue maybe, tried ICSI but then still got low fertilisation then we need to explore a little bit more. And sometimes it is unfortunately experimental. So um, maybe we do assume that it's an oocyte activation issue and we do go down that path. Or perhaps we are getting some type of fertilization but very poor blastocysts from that. And then maybe we do look at potentially using IMSI or you know something else to try and change that. However, I think it is really important to note that just because we can use these techniques and we have other options doesn't always mean that that's going to be the right choice for every patient. Like it obviously does include their history as well and what we know from, you know, their, the quality of both gametes um, as to how well this is going to work. And we do come to sometimes a a bit of a brick wall as to the why. Like we can sometimes describe the what but not the why. I I think that sometimes for patients can be very frustrating because we we get to a point where we observe what's happening. We know full well what's happening. We know that, you know, if they've got a low fertilisation dynamic with their partner, you know, in cases with a sperm donor conception, we sometimes change donors and get a better a better um, outcome for a patient. So sometimes it's the DNA dynamics, but when it's your partner, you don't want to mix that up. Yeah, I was just, I was going to ask, does that happen? The sperm and they just, just don't work together. There, there, are, there are less and more fertile combinations for sure. So mm. a lot of the factors that we bring to the table with a partner trying to conceive are you know, intrinsic. Some are accumulated throughout life. Like for example, someone who's perfectly fertile at 21 might struggle uh, at 43. It's nothing to do with their intrinsic fertility. It's just age, you know, and, and equality related to age. And sometimes we beat those odds with numbers, with sheer statistics, and sometimes we can't and we need a donor egg to mix it up. So there are, there are lots of different um, problem points and there are also problem points that we see that we can't explain. And, you know, a patient might say to me, and I'm sure they say to you also, Cody, because it's often our scientists who give the fertilisation outcomes on the phone. 
to patients on the day after their egg collection. Why didn't all my eggs fertilise? And we, we can't answer that necessarily. That's right. Yeah. So sometimes it is, um, we just, we have to be honest with the patients too and be like, look, um, we don't know why there are things we can try. You know, it's not the end just because they didn't fertilize doesn't mean that's it. And you if you come back again and do another treatment that you'd get the same result, even, um, you know, we have patients that come back and they do use the same treatment cycle, but get a completely different outcome. So unfortunately, sometimes it is just a bit of luck too. Yeah, because we we expect a lot of eggs not to fertilize because that's kind of the dynamic of eggs. Absolutely, yeah. And also, you know, we normally recruit, well, naturally, you normally get one egg recruited, right, when you um, would normally ovulate. So what we're doing is when we stimulate, we're getting a whole heap of eggs that wouldn't normally make it to that stage be collected and most of the time you know we expect them all to be of the right quality but when you're recruiting a whole heap of eggs you're not going to get perfect dna to start with um or perfect quality of health of eggs for every single egg it's it's yeah it would be almost impossible to get 100 percent Oh, yeah. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that when I counsel patients for egg freezing where they're not getting immediate outcomes, they're not getting next day fertilisation calls and having a look at embryo quality because we can't do that without having the sperm and the commitment to make embryos, I say freeze a lot of eggs because what we expect is that only 50% will fertilise. Some also from the headline number won't even survive the warming process. So after we've taken them out of the freezer, those that survive, only 50% will fertilise. And again, only about half of those will go on to make a transferable embryo. And then the chance of an embryo making a baby um, is going to be contingent on the age you were when you froze eggs. So uh, what you want to do is really buffer your numbers so that you have a really awesome chance of having a baby from frozen eggs. Cody, Raya often talks about how amazing the lab is at Melbourne IVF and how it's a world leader. How does that affect outcomes? Yeah, so we are very lucky at Melbourne IVF to have really state-of-the-art and cutting-edge equipment like Um, The embryoscopes that we have, so the incubators that the eggs are kept in and that the embryos are grown in, that allows us to take photos every 10 minutes. And so we can run these photos together and get like a full video of every stage the eggs divide, uh, yeah, the egg has divided. It gives us so much information that they didn't have before. And from that, the footage, we can, yeah, really it's changed the way we can assess embryos it's changed the way um, especially with the artificial intelligence on how we best select the best embryo to put back I think we're also really lucky is with our culture systems so the media that the embryos are grown in um, it really is so well researched and so well produced now that we can keep these embryos growing in a lab until day seven of their life, that's incredible, the fact that we have the nutrients that we can do that outside of the human body. So, yeah, I think with the equipment that we have, with the media culture that we have, with the scientists and, you know, the level of experience that they have, 
we really are giving these embryos the best chance of making it to the stage where they can implant. I feel like at Melbourne IVF, we're very lucky that we're set up that well to be able to provide patients with that level of care. You've been a scientist for a little while and you would have seen a lot of change happen with with ART. What is the most exciting development that's happened in your time? Yeah, so I'm still pretty new to the field. So I've been an embryologist for three years now and I guess I came in at a stage where the embryoscopes were kind of being introduced. So I was lucky that I got to start off with them, but I think really that is the biggest step recently that we've had because it really is a game changer not only for us and the information it provides also to the patients the footage that they get of their embryos too it kind of includes them back in the process so it's not just this um, mystery of what has happened to my embryo and then it gets put back you know we now provide them with um, a little report that shows photos of each stage they had and how the embryo divides and like that kind of information for a patient even is you know that's incredible so they sound pretty amazing do you know what I love about the question because we've had a few episodes of knocked up with different IVF scientists in this series and what I love is that everyone's answer is different to that question <laughs> it's, it's beautiful and it just goes to show that there are so many aspects of IVF and one of so interesting and fascinating and one of the things that I love about this area of medicine myself is that it is constantly evolving and that every year, every, you know, couple of years, there are radical changes to the way we practice that improve outcomes for patients. And looking at success rates in IVF compared to when I started studying in this area, which is a long time ago now, it's amazing. Like it's amazing from Cycles where multiple cleavage stage embryos were put back to achieve success rates, you know, in the low 20s as, you know, an average success rate to now single blastocyst transfer being the norm and the gold standard and with success rates for young couples in excess of, you know, 40 to 50% per, per embryo transfer. It's just unbelievable. So it's one of those situations that unfortunately for couples who are really pushing the boundaries and women who are really pushing the boundaries of an age where it's credible and possible to have a baby, we're always going to hit a lot of speed humps in the lab because it's the intrinsic concerns from the gametes, from the egg particularly. But we're really, you know, making steps forward and just getting closer and closer to achieving the potential of what is possible and just shifting the the goalposts so that more and more is possible, which is really exciting. Thank you so much for joining us today, Cody. That was fascinating. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, great to have you on Knocked Up. To support Knocked Up, leave us a review or recommend to a friend. Join us on Instagram at Knocked Up Podcast and join Raylia at Dr. Raylia Lou. And email us your questions to podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. 